All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes an excellent newsletter called What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Now, uh, with regard to Chen's newsletter, he is not taking subscriptions, new subscriptions now until the beginning of the next quarter. And if you are interested in signing up for his letter, you need to go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, and, uh, uh, and then sign up uh, for Chen's letter. You have to leave a, uh, put your name on a waiting list. And uh, in order of receipt, we will then uh, uh, notify you and let you know that you are eligible to come on as a new subscriber at the beginning of the next quarter. Uh, Chen has compiled an excellent, uh, tremendous uh, letter over a uh, track record, I should say, over a period of years. Like everybody else, uh, uh, he is uh, down a bit this year uh, with the things we are looking at. Uh, haven't done all that well, but uh, over the long term, he has done exceedingly well. Um, you can, without any delay, sign up for my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. I uh, can go to miningstocks.com for that uh, as well. Um, but I like to tell people also that they can go to jtaylormedia, J-A-Y-T-A-Y-L-O-R-Media.com to sign up uh, for uh, or to follow everything that I do. Uh, also, you can follow me on Twitter, um, and the handle uh, is jtaylormedia. Uh, if you go to jtaylormedia, you can also access this show very easily by just simply clicking on the radio button. That will take you right to the Voice America website where you can listen to the show live or you can download it at Voice America or you can um, download it on the iStore as well. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. I want to also thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors uh, for, this, uh, for, the, for this season are Timmins Gold, Bravada Gold, Golden Arrow Resources, Miranda Gold, Paramount Gold, Sand Gold, and Uranium Energy Corporation. I do want to talk about a couple of the uh, of our sponsors today that have uh, had some pretty good news coming out recently. Uh, Golden Arrow, in particular, uh, is one I'd like to highlight. They came through uh, last week uh, with some tremendous um, recoveries and metallurgical recoveries up to 98.7 on its Chinchillas Silver deposit. Uh, and then uh, uh, at the beginning of, well, at the very end of last week, also some news about their first resource, uh, their silver resource, silver, uh, uh, silver 
uh, lead and zinc. But the indicated resource uh, uh, category was 7.2 million tons containing 32.6 million ounces of silver, silver equivalent, and then an inferred resource of 21 million tons containing 72.2 million ounces of silver equivalent. Add it up, and it's about 104 million ounces of silver equivalent mineralization. Not a bad start for a, a project uh, that's in its early days still with huge amounts of, uh, of targets to shoot at. What is probably the most exciting about the Chinchillas uh, exploration work that's going on so far is the fact that they have uh, discovered the, the feeder zones, uh, and that means they could be getting some really high grades uh, over the next uh, drilling campaign. There will be more drill results coming out in the near future, too. Uh, the stock is selling at $0.29 cents today. Uh, very low market cap for the uh, for a company that may be in the process of putting together a world class silver deposit uh, in Argentina. Now, of course, this is not anything different uh, for Golden Arrow as for the the industry as a whole. Is really some of the most spectacular values that I have seen in a long, long time. Uh, and um, uh, here at the uh, at the New York Metals. Uh, and, mi- and mining and, met- and minerals show in New York City at Times Square uh, at the Marriott Marquis, where I am talking to you from now. Uh, I've never seen uh, such a small crowd in terms of um, the number of companies uh, and the number of per- uh, attendees at the show. It is really, a, I think, a contrarian indicator, if ever I've seen one, a really good time to take a hard look at a lot of these companies because they are so out of favor and yet there's a lot of good exploration results that are coming through, mineral deposits that are being formed that have a chance to become, uh, you know, big major deposits. Now, for sure, uh, the vast majority of the junior mining companies are not going to turn out major deposits. So what we're trying to do is find those few that have the best chance of, of doing that. And I certainly think that Golden Arrow has a real good chance given what's going on there now. Another company uh, that uh, sponsor that I'd like to highlight is Timmins Gold Corp, selling at two dollars and thirty-six cents today. It earned fourteen point three million dollars the first quarter of this year, uh, and it earned, generated an operating profit of nineteen point three million dollars. A cash flow from operations of twenty-six point nine million dollars produced a record number of ounces per quarter, twenty-eight thousand three hundred and twenty-eight ounces. Uh, I believe the company is targeting 120,000 ounces of production this year, uh, and um, the exploration is continuing, and I expect uh, that this company can grow its uh, deposit very significantly over a long period of time and be able to do it from internally generated cash flows. And this is something I'm really highlighting to my subscribers, is that these companies that can uh, that can really produce cash flows and grow organically as opposed to having to go out and uh, raise capital in a dreadful market and dilute shareholder uh, shareholder positions uh, is really what we want to do. And those companies will be able to, almost in a predatory fashion, feed off of the little guys that don't make it, the uh, the insolvent companies, the companies that can't go out and sell new shares of stock because the market is just so dreadfully depressed. Uh, Timmins Gold, um, uh, as I just mentioned, is doing very, very well. Cash flow positive, doing very well. You know, I like the I like the project generators to a great extent in this market because of the limitations on shareholder dilution. And one company is here at the conference that is also 
a sponsor is Miranda Gold. They have uh, this is a project generator that is operating in Nevada and also Colombia, and I think they've they picked up some really highly prospective properties in Colombia. They do have Agneagle Eagle spending to earn into at least one of those, and there's one in Nevada that they were highlighting here uh, at the show in New York, and that's the Red Hill property. Uh, that would seem to hold great potential as well, uh, and that's um, you know that's here that's in Nevada. Paramount Gold a dollar forty three. Uh, oh, I should mention Miranda Gold at sixteen and a half cents today. Paramount Gold at a dollar forty three. This is a company that's really turning out some big ounces numbers uh, from two different properties of San Miguel in Mexico and the Sleeper in Nevada. Came out with some really good drill results over two hundred meters on the Sleeper just recently, and uh, that is one that. Memory serves me correctly, uh, not that far, well, well over 6 million ounces of gold equivalent. I can't remember exactly the total number, but the numbers between the two properties may be closer to 10 million uh, ounces of gold equivalent. And a lot of silver, silver and gold on both properties. The Nevada property is more of a gold property. Sand gold is one that I'm really watching very carefully and talked to some people here at the conference about sand gold. 15 cents today, they lost $9.66 million dollars. In the first quarter of this year, produced 17,354 ounces. They did, however, within those within that loss, take some some. Uh, they sort of bit the bullet on some severance expenses and other unusual non-operating expenses. Uh, they should be ready to turn things around fairly fairly soon. I'm I'm uh, crossing my fingers. I've invested in this stock, and I should mention that all of the companies I'm mentioning, all of our sponsors, are current recommendations in my newsletter as well. Uh, and I own all of them, I believe, with the exception of uranium energy. So this gives you an idea that uh, I am putting my money where my mouth is uh, with respect to these companies. Uranium energy figures to be the next, uh, well, it is the next producer of uranium in the United States, but it should be growing very dramatically through its, uh, through its various uh, satellite deposits, ISL deposits in Texas. Uh, and this is a company, I think, uh, if you buy the idea that uranium prices are headed to much higher levels, when the supplies stop coming from the uh, former Soviet Union, then, uh, then I think the future could be very, very bright for uranium. Uh, we do, uh, we do need to, um, uh, talk about today's show. I am, uh, titling today's show, How Can Corporate Reputation Be Restored in the Western World? Uh, we're going to be talking to Knesset member Moshe Faglin and Professor Jonathan Macy. Uh, they are both first-time guests. Dr. Macy will talk about his recent book, The Death of Corporate Reputation. Dr. Macy explains why corporate reputation has been in decline over the last decade and increasing regulations has not been very effective in reviving it. And Dr. Macy, uh, I think, will explain uh, many, uh, provide many great insights into why uh, the uh, corporations and banks, in particular the financial sector, is really not looked at very favorably and what needs to be done to turn that around. And Moshe Faglin will come on at about 4 o'clock today, and he will talk about, uh, well, he, many people think that Moshe Faglin could become prime minister of Israel, and he believes a loss of observance of God's laws is to blame for the de- uh, decline of the West and, and for Israel's problems, too, quite frankly. So he has a very, very different view of the world than most people, uh, most politicians in Israel and every, everywhere else. You may find him a little bit um, objectionable, perhaps, or do you may not agree with him, but I think he's certainly worth listening if you have an open mind. You want to listen to Moshe Faglin. We've got Robert Ian coming on at about 4.30 today to talk about his upcoming Liberty Mastermind Symposium in Dallas. 
Uh, and I mentioned that I'm talking to you here from the Metals and Minerals Conference in New York City, and I ran into a very interesting and I think highly prospective company named SGX Resources, and I will be talking to the company's uh, president, Dale Ginn, in just a couple of minutes here, in 30 seconds or so after we go to break. Uh, Dale Ginn will come back to me. Now, this is a company that's recently reported some very high-grade intersections uh, from its latest drilling results at the Tully Gold Deposit in Ontario. And this looks to me like Mr. Ginn could be on to something very significant here, so we're going to talk to him uh, in just a couple of minutes about that about that program. The big thing, the big question in everybody's mind here in New York is, is the gold mining industry turn about to turn around? Is the price of gold, I should say, and the price of silver about to turn around? Well, uh, I'm sure hopeful it is because it impacts my business and, and a lot of my investments. But uh, we talked to Charles Nanner, and he uh, definitely believes that we're looking at something like mid-June. His cycles, uh, it's time for a cycle, based on his cycles work, that we should see a turn in the gold and silver price more or less around mid-June. Uh, but I do think that we could see further declines. In fact, today we're seeing a further decline in gold. Uh, the, if you look at the chart, it looks like we could see something just slightly north of a thousand even. That's where there is real strong support, uh, for gold. Uh, then would it linger or would we have a V-shaped recovery is, is another issue, of course, but, uh, Charles Nanner believes there will be a more opportune time to get in than right now. So he's saying hold off until the middle of June. He thinks we may have hit the bottom, uh, but, um, you know, let's, let's try to buy as close to the bottom as possible to add to our positions. Well, we do have to go to break now, and as soon as we come back, uh, we will be talking to Dale Ginn of SGX Resources. Don't go away. I'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Windfall profits happen frequently in gold exploration stocks, but the risk of losses are also common. Miranda Gold enhances prospects of shareholder gains by combining the intellectual capital of geologists, mine finders Ken Cunningham and Joe Herbert with other people's hard dollars in search for elephant-sized gold deposits in politically safe places like Nevada and Columbia. That keeps shareholder dilution to a minimum, so when discoveries are made, major gains are possible. For more, go to MirandaGold.com. Nevada Gold Corporation controls 18 exploration and development properties covering nearly 50 square miles in Nevada's well-known gold trends. Its flagship Wind Mountain Gold Silver Project is 100% owned and had an independent updated resource estimate and positive preliminary economic assessment in early 2012. This past September, Bravada signed an agreement with Argonaut Gold to further explore and develop Wind Mountain. For further information, please visit bravadagold.com. Attention mining investors, Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources com or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Dale Ginn. He's the president and CEO of SGX Resources, uh, trades in the Toronto Exchange under SXR is the symbol. 126.8 million shares outstanding, trading at a mere six and a half cents today, despite the fact that the company's come up with some really interesting and I think very promising drill intercepts. We're going to talk to Dale about that in just a second, but with six and a half cents, it gives it a market cap of a mere $8.3 million. Well, this is really what is sort of going on in this industry right now. We have remarkably good situations, uh, stories, even producing companies not doing all that well in the market right now. Those that are doing well, uh, even with their operations, earning money, cash flow positive, doing very nicely, good return on investment. The markets just hate gold stocks right now. They just hate mining stocks, and so I think it's a really excellent time to talk to Dale again. Welcome, Dale. Thanks, Jay. Glad to be here. Dale, you and I have been around this industry for quite a while. Can you remember, uh, there have been other difficult times, but this sort of has to rank among some of the most difficult. Would you agree with that? It's difficult, and uh, it's hard, you know, for a lot of us to, to rationalize, you know, because the commodity price really is a lot better than uh, what it's been for most of my career, for sure. Yeah. Well, it, it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of strange. It seems strange to me. But let's get right into it because we don't have an awful lot of time. What do you, you have, uh, your project called the Tully Project, uh, is that right? Yes, it's called the Tully Gold Deposit, and it's uh, 20 kilometers straight north of Timmins, Ontario. And uh, you've discovered, gold was discovered there some time ago, uh, by whom and, and who, who and when? Well, it was first discovered in um, 1969 by McIntyre Mines, and that was more uh, for a search for copper. And it's immediately east of the uh, large Kid Creek um, copper mine, and uh, but it's, it's covered by uh, kind of a swampy overburden for most of the area, and so it, it just hasn't been prospected uh, at all okay now tell us about some of these drill intercepts talk to us uh tell us give us some numbers if you would and and what do they mean to you sure i mean you know just going uh from the west side to the east side of the deposit we're getting you know 14 meters of six and a half grams six meters of 12 grams 15 meters of seven grams uh 14 meters of 20 grams and the latest was uh 18 meters of 11 grams, and this mm-hmm. is all, all of it above, you know, not, not even 200 meters below surface. Okay, now, as I, I looked at a map down at your booth down at the show, and uh, these look like they're sort of stacked layers. Is that, is that what we're looking at here? So those numbers, so what, can you give us some sense of the dimension of this mineralization? Sure. So far, you know, we know uh, the deposit is, is basically consisting of a series of uh, flatter, uh, we call them, you know, stacked quartz uh, veins, mm-hmm. and we've identified it for uh, over a 600 meter strike length, so almost mm-hmm. a 2,000 foot strike length, and to depths of about 
250 meters deep so far, and it's wide open. And mm-hmm. uh, we've wide, identified- open uh, wide open along strike and at depth, Dale. Wide open uh, long strike and at depth, mm-hmm. and we're, you know, we've identified the host rock that that these veins occur in, mm-hmm. and they occur along a large regional fault called the Pipestone Fault, which is a, a splay from uh, from the main, uh, you know, Timmins area, Timmins Fault. So mm-hmm. it's uh, it's a very pro- you know prolific area. It's produced over sixty million ounces in the past. Mm-hmm. And how does this? What does this remind you of? Some of those prolific producers in the past. Is it? Is the geology very similar? The mineralization similar? It is. Uh, some of the best mines in Timmins, including Hoyle Pond, which is currently in production. Um, you know, some of their best veins were the flat veins, and it, it looks to me like we've got ourselves a, uh, a series of these stacked flat veins. And when they stack up. Mm-hmm. They basically stack up into neat, sort of, uh, you know, 10 to 20 meter wide uh, packages, which would be, you know, very conducive to uh, to mining. So you wouldn't go in and bulk mine a whole bunch of these veins at once. You'd you'd mine each of the veins independently. You'd have a bit of a combination, but it would be it would be a, a you know, a, as far as underground uh, mining goes, it'd be a, a bulkier type of a deposit, mm-hmm. but you'd uh, probably end up with, uh, you know, with a very good grade, sort of quarter ounce per ton uh, grades. So you feel you have a pretty good handle on, on where to drill. Will you be drilling from under, no, I guess you can't drill from these all, there's no access underground, so you're going to be drilling from surface. You've, you've got a, a drill targets on surface to drill down more? Yeah, that's correct. We've got many, many of the gaps you know, of information to fill, and uh, mm-hmm. we're busy extending the deposit uh, mostly to the east for now, but mm-hmm. in both directions, um, you know, we're having success in moving the, the zone, uh, you know, at length to the east, mm-hmm. and that was what the uh, the last press release really highlighted was the fact that we hit, uh, you know, in, in hole 18, for example, we hit seven different intersections, including... Uh, Eight meters of six grams and eighteen meters of eleven grams, all you know, within the same hole. Oh, this is a vertical hole, Dale. Near vertical, yeah, uh-huh. designed to intersect flat veins. So we're trying uh-huh. to to cut the veins at uh, you know right angles, if you will, at the proper mm-hmm. angle. Mm-hmm. Well, this certainly does sound exciting. I know you have other targets up there in the Timmins area as well, do you not? We have only got a minute left, but you do have others, right? Yeah, we have our south. Property 60 kilometers south. It's more of a bulky surface, uh, lower grade deposit that we found from scratch. Mm-hmm. And then we've got our um, uh, Davidson Tisdale deposit that we have right in the heart of Timmins, mm-hmm. and that's a joint venture with uh, another uh, another junior uh, ex- explorer. And and that junior is earning is spending to earn in. Uh, say that again, Jay. Sorry that junior is, is earning to spend is spending to earn in. Yeah, we we're operating it as a joint venture. Uh, we spend the uh, sort of pro rata amounts and. Okay. We also All right, have, Dale. Uh, we're, we're just we're just about out of time. I, how much money do you have in the till, and how far will that take you in your drill program? Uh, in the current program, we've got about uh, three million dollars, and that'll take us about a year and a half at the current pace. Okay. And so so we're in pretty good shape relative to most of our peers. 
So we should be seeing some good. Uh, we should be seeing some more drill results coming out on a regular basis. I hope to talk to you very soon again, Dale. We are out of time, un- unfortunately. We've got to run. But thank you so much for coming on and sharing this exciting story with our listeners. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Jay. Folks, don't go away. Don't go away. We've got to go to break now. When we come back, we're going to be with uh, Professor Yale Professor uh, Jonathan Macy. Don't go away. I'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. Paramount Gold is a U.S.-based exploration company with multi-million ounce advanced stage gold and silver projects in the mining-friendly jurisdictions of Nevada and northern Mexico, backed by a strategic investor and a strong balance sheet. An experienced management team has completed preliminary economic assessments on both projects, showing robust economics and immense potential for increasing ounces and mine life. For more information, go to ParamountGold.com or follow on Twitter, PZG News. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me today Professor Jonathan Macy, Professor Macy is Sam Harris Professor of Corporate Law, Corporate Finance, and Securities Law at Yale University and Professor in the Yale School of Management. He is a member of the Board of Directors of the Yale Law School Center for the Study of Corporate Governance, a member of the Faculty Advisory, has served as an independent director of two public companies, and is a member of FINRA's Economic Advisory Council and the Bipartisan Policy Center Task Force on Capital Markets. In 1995, Professor Macy was awarded the Paul M. Bater Prize for Excellence in uh, Teaching, Scholarship, and Public Service by the uh, Federalist Society for Law and Public Policy. Professor Macy earned his bachelor's degree cum laude from Harvard and his JD from Yale Law School, and he re- received a Ph.D. honors causa from the Stockholm School of Economics. Professor Macy is the author of Corporate Governance, Promises Kept, Promises Broken, uh, Macy on Corporation Law, and more recently, The Death of Corporate Reputation. And it is his latest book, The Death of Corporate Reputation, that we want to talk to him about today. Welcome, Professor Macy, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. 
Thanks. It's great to be here with you. Really good to have you. You know, I've been around a while, probably longer than you. Um, I was born in 1947, and I have to say that I can't think of any time in my lifetime, in this post-World War II era, uh, that corporate America, and especially the financial markets, have had a worse reputation than, than they do now. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that, and I agree with your emphasis on the on the financial sector. I think parts of the manufacturing sector particularly automobiles and, and software companies, are, are, are generally regarded pretty well by people. You think about c- companies like Google uh, and Intel, and, and Ford has been, do- been doing a good job with its new cars, I think. So, you know, I do think that, that, the, that, that uh, while, the, while the, the sort of main street part of our economy is, is on the way back up, I think that uh, the financial sector, which is an increasingly large part of the economy, is... Continues to have problems in terms of ethical challenges and and a corresponding kind of decline in the reputations. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I want to I want to ask you why that's true. But before we get to that, I'd like to have you compare this period of time, if you would, perhaps with that of an earlier period before my lifetime, uh, the robber baron period. I guess with the 1920s or so. Is this comparable in any way? Do you think? I think there are a lot of similarities. Uh, in particular, during that period of time, we were seeing uh, a very strong growth uh, in the manufacturing sector of the economy. We were also seeing a lot of shenanigans on Wall Street, a lot of unscrupulous uh, activity. And I think the, 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 the most important analogy, perhaps, between now and then is a tremendous amount of problems with antitrust, with monopoly, with with businesses concentrating rather than uh, competing, and a lot of uh, a lot of, uh, of problems in terms of antitrust. Mm-hmm. Well, that certainly that yes, in in reading uh, the history books, that would certainly be the case. But some might say the same thing is sort of happening in the financial sector now. Would you agree with that? I could not agree more. I think that's absolutely right. You look at the credit rating agency space, hugely important in modern finance. And it's very uncompetitive. Mm-hmm. Look at the accounting industry in terms of the big audit firms who audit public companies, extremely concentrated. Investment banking, very concentrated. Uh, so it's, it's, it's uh, really uh, part of the problem that we face is, a, is, a, is an extreme uh, absence of, of uh, uh, co- competition driving firms to try and distinguish themselves. Uh-huh. And in the banking industry, for example, I know, let's uh, take derivatives, there are just maybe two or three or four major derivative players that control almost all of that market. Isn't that so? That's absolutely right. And I think it goes without saying that I think it's very important to, to people to realize that if it weren't for these hand, literally handful of firms uh, who created the so-called shadow banking system that led to the financial collapse in 07 and 08, we would not have had the financial collapse that we that we experienced and are still experiencing. Could you uh, explain that a little bit more, perhaps the shadow banking uh, idea and how that contributed to the collapse? Sure, I'd be I'd be delighted to. So you know, the people I think understand generally the basic idea of a bank. You know, the an old-fashioned commercial bank. Sure. Where you um, People put their money in there, and they, and, and they can get their money back because it's in checking accounts or savings accounts that you know, people have the right to access those funds. And the bank takes the money and loans it out to people mm-hmm. uh, and, and to businesses and makes loans. So 
you, you have this, this, that's the basic banking model. Mm-hmm. And with, with, with complex derivatives, and some not very complex, frankly, um, this basic banking system was being, was being recreated by the big investment banks. So a company like Lehman Brothers, for example, would, would, would borrow money short term. And this is sort of like the people give, giving Lehman Brothers short-term money uh, by buying up their commercial papers or buying uh, repurchase agreements from them, or just exactly like depositors. Mm-hmm. And Lehman Brothers was taking this money that it would have to repay often the next day, sometimes in 30 days, and they were taking that money and using it to fund their long-term operations, which mm-hmm. created a tremendously fragile system and it was completely unregulated mm-hmm. and a very only the very few very biggest financial institutions were able to do this which is to say borrow money cheap in the mm-hmm. short term market and then use that money for long term projects because to, be, to do this what they had to be able to do is every day uh, 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 sell hundreds of millions of dollars in additional debt to pay off their old debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the only reason people would continue to le- lend the money in this sort of crazy musical chairs kind of setup was because these institutions are too big to fail. They knew that if they got into trouble, uh, the government would come in and bail them out, which is essentially what happened in the financial crisis. It happened to Bear Stearns, it happened to Bank of America, it happened to Goldman, it happened to AIG, it happened to Morgan Stanley, it happened to Wells Fargo. It did not happen to Lehman Brothers. That's the one exception. And the and and uh, it was that that you know people got really upset about that people guessed wrong in in thinking the government was going to bail them out too. Mm. So when did I mean I don't want to diverge too much from your book here, but this is so interesting to me. When did when did this too big to fail idea come about? Well, that's a that's a that's a, a great question. You can one can can uh, figure that precisely. That is, in the 1980s, I think the year was 1987, I may be mistaken, mm-hmm. but uh, there was a huge bank in Chicago, Continental Illinois Trust Company. I remember. And they went, they were experiencing financial difficulties. And the government bailed them out. The FDIC bailed them out. And a lot of people complained. They said, why are you bailing these guys out? You're not supposed to bail them out. You bail out the depositors who have deposit insurance, mm-hmm. but you don't bail out the shareholders and the and, and, and uh, you know, all these other kind of uh, uh, big institutions. Mm-hmm. And the FDIC said, this is a very strange statement, but very memorable. They said, the top 11 banks in the country are too big to fail. Hmm. And so what, what happened after that was a disaster, which was that all the, it, all the um, uh, trust money and all the, all the money that was being invested for people with pensions and things like that, that were in... Uh, the banks that were uh, not too big to fail, bank number 12 mm-hmm. through bank number <laughs> 500, they started pulling their money out and putting it into the banks that were too big to fail because uh-huh. they didn't want to put their money at any risk at all. And this led to tremendous economic upheaval, a tremendous amount of concentration as banks began to merge so that they would become too big to fail, so that they would get this government guarantee. Um, and, uh, and and it's been it's been a, a huge problem ever since. Uh, it's 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 the largest problem that we face in terms of trying to regulate these big financial institutions and the capital markets. Yeah, it it really has, and then of course led to the to the Lehman Brothers situation. I guess ultimately. That's absolutely right. Right now, okay. So I'd like to get back more on topic with your book. Um, why 
the difference, and I, I think you make the point in your book that it was a lot easier, or it's easier for a manufacturing company to gain a good reputation than it is for a financial uh, company. Uh, is that is is that correct? Is that what you're saying? That's, that's right. That's right. And and the way to think about it is, if you if you're offering a service or you're or you have a manufacturing product, the the reputational issue is that. You need people to trust you. You need people to think, if I do business with this broker broker's firm, I'm not going to be ripped off. Or if I buy this toaster oven or this automobile, it's going to work. Now, there's a very simple way to deal with this problem in manufacturing, which we're, we all know about. It's the warranty. I think, well, customers think that my product has a high likelihood of breaking. I know that we have great quality controls if I'm a manufacturer, and it has a very low probability of breaking. And the way I can prove this to people is just offer a very strong warranty, and give a, 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 a you know a, a no questions asked warranty. If the thing breaks, we'll we'll exchange it or give you your money back or whatever the warranty is. And uh, and the way that this works is an economic matter is that the manufacturer says, well, only about maybe one in a thousand of these things will 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 not function correctly. Mm-hmm. So they could just raise the price of these by pennies. And use the extra pennies to pay for the warrant. Mm-hmm. So the good, the ones that work, the products that work are kind of uh, being insurance, paying the insurance for the ones that don't work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you think about Enron selling securities, that's uninsurable because when, it's not just one Enron security that fails. When the company fails, they all fail. So it's a very different kind of product. Mm-hmm. And you know, when 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 if somebody's out there with a kind of a pump and dump. Uh, uh, stock scheme, mm-hmm. then uh, you know they're they're ripping off everybody. There's no they can't. There's the warranty kind of component of of the manufacturing process just doesn't work. Right. Yeah. So the so the warranty, and then I would also uh, wonder if you wouldn't think that there's probably more competition. Getting back to that issue in the manufacturing sector, certainly American manufacturers have had huge amounts of competition from imports in recent years. Um, so is that also something that has helped to keep the manufacturers maybe it's honest? It's been a very large component. But another thing that's been a big component is is uh, is the difference in the way government regulates in the in the in the manufacturing mm-hmm. sector and in the financial sector. It, nobody says, it, with very few exceptions, no. The government does not say, you know, if I bought the, the, the government's going to sue General Electric if they sell a toaster oven mm-hmm. and the toaster oven doesn't work. Mm-hmm. That that's worked out in the private market by contracting. You take it back. You have a warranty. Um, whereas in the in the securities markets, the government tries to make people think that the government is protecting the people in the securities markets. We have these all these broker dealer firms. They say I'm a member of SIPC, I'm a mm-hmm. member of this, I'm a member of Finra, I'm regulated by the SEC, uh, and the SEC on its website says you know we we are we're our job is protecting investors. So people have been so kind of brainwashed by all this government propaganda about how they're the watchdogs of the financial markets that people stopped really caring about reputation. And the problem with that is that it costs money for a financial firm to develop a reputation. You have to be willing to take some losses mm-hmm. to prove to people that you're standing behind your product and that you're uh, going to you know, go the extra mile to make sure that customers are satisfied and, 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 and know that, that the, uh, you know, the, the securities firm... Uh, or the financial firm can be trusted. 
Uh, and nobody, there's no motivation to do this if, if everybody thinks the government's going to protect them. So they're just going to go to the cheapest possible competitor. Sure. And it would seem to make the consumers rather um, not as sharp and not as observant of what's going on. Or in the case of banking, the bankers don't have to worry too much either. Well, let's right. say as we a, saw a, this directly in the financial crisis. That uh-huh. You saw these weird uh, collateralized debt obligations, so-called CDOs and other residential mortgage-backed securities and a bunch of just very odd and incredibly complex financial uh, uh, products, and they get a AAA rating from Standard & Poor's. Now, nobody really thought that these things deserved a AAA rating mm-hmm. in, in the sense that nobody's sophisticated. And we know this because... They, these things traded at a significant discount to other AAA securities like U.S. government obligations, for example. But, you know, people said, oh, this is a AAA rating and, you know, the, the government isn't going to let people, you know, uh, uh, sell things with a AAA rating unless they're good. So people bought these things and, and, and really came to regret it. Uh, so, you know, I think that, that it, you know, it, it is a problem that, you know, that to the extent that people are, are you know, uh, still have a residual of trust, the few that do, in the credit rating agencies or, uh, you know, the audit opinions issued by accounting firms or the things that, the fairness opinions that, that investment banks dole out. Um, you know, there, there's, there's, it's a real risk there because you can't trust that stuff. You know, um, recently David Stockman, I believe, in his book was talking about um, FDIC and that FDIC, in fact, makes people... Um, you know, trust the government, trust the, uh, tr- you know, tr- trust that they don't have to worry about where they put their money in the banking institution. And the banks, of course, don't have to worry either so much because the depositors will always be there, or they figure, because of this insurance. Right. Uh, w- would we be better off, uh, maybe this is more of an economic question, but would we be better off, not that we could do it immediately, but would we be better off if if we made the buyer beware, the consumer uh, pay attention to uh, to where they put their money? Well, you know, it's a great, it's a very interesting question. I, I think my answer is, this, is just simple, which is look at, let's look at history. Mm-hmm. So let's take a look at what banks did before deposit insurance. And mm-hmm. I'm actually in favor of deposit insurance, but not in the form we have it. Mm-hmm. So it used to be the case that if that when banks um, banks had depositors and they had shareholders, but state law said, this is prior to the federal government coming into this space, they said if the, if the bank can't pay depositors every penny they owe them, then the shareholders have to kick in extra money mm-hmm. until the depositors get paid back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so it, uh, there, there were limits to this, but let's say, for example, that I bought a uh, million dollars worth of bank stock. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the bank can't pay back its depositors, I have to chip in another million mm-hmm. until these depositors get paid back. Mm-hmm. It turns out even though there were thousands of bank failures during the Great Depression, very few depositors lost money. Shareholders lost tons, mm-hmm. but depositors were protected. Mm-hmm. Well, my view is we ought to have exactly the same system now that we ought to, we ought to, the, to the extent that the government has to come in and bail out government-insured depositors, they should be able to go after the shareholders to get that money back. Mm-hmm. Because the board of directors are running these banks in a risky fashion to maximize returns for shareholders. Uh, and if they're getting the benefits of this risk taken, they ought to suffer uh, the, uh, they ought to also uh, uh, bear the cost. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it would seem it would seem just. Uh, that's for sure. Um, you know, we have to have to ask you um, while we're talking about depositors' money and FDIC. Um, Glass Steagall, it seems to me. I, I mean, I'm just saying what I believe that I, th- I think it was a mistake in removing Glass Steagall. If we're going to have allow these big banks to take on extremely risky activities and then lay off the losses to uh, taxpayers, or to yeah, no, I, I think that's right. The problem I have is that um, getting reinstating Glass Steagall would be kind of a half measure. In other words. Mm-hmm. That, that, that you would get rid of some kinds of risk, but not all kinds of risk, and mm-hmm. that you know that 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 um, my my view is that you know I'd be in favor of reinstating glass steel, but it wouldn't be my first choice policy option, is the way I'd like to put it. In other words, I think that the only way to really deal with this problem is to break up the big bank. Uh huh. Because if you had a bank, you, you know, if you have banks the size of Bank of America, the size of Goldman Sachs. Even if they're only limited because of something like Glass-Steagall to commercial banking or only limited to the securities business, they're still too big to fail. We still have this problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think you've got to break them up. Mm-hmm. Well, it would certainly be consistent with what was done with the robber barons, and wouldn't it? I mean, with the right. uh, so you have these monopolies essentially, and some people would argue essentially that the Federal Reserve in itself has created a monopoly banking system. Well, we have a monopoly banking system. I think there are a lot of causes, and certainly the Federal Reserve hasn't helped. Yeah. Um, this is a question. I, I'm just wondering what how you would react to it. Um, I look at the growth of money and credit since 1971 when Nixon took us off the gold standard internationally. And I can remember, you know, I'm old enough to remember when my parents thought, borrowing was a bad thing to do. And then some of the people said, well, you know, you can get a credit card, you can use it to go out and buy gasoline. If you pay it back, uh, you buy some gas for your car. If you pay it back in the next month, it's no big deal. Okay, fine. But then, you know, gradually people started becoming more and more comfortable with taking on debt and never worrying about ever paying it back. And then we got into this spiraling, almost exponential growth of credit and and debt uh, globally. Uh, well, in the United States, we led the way. But if you look at what happened, I look at uh, Mr. Greenspan pumping money into the system, keeping right. interest rates extremely low for a long time. If I'm running a bank and I have all this cash in my, you know, de- depositors' money in my bank, I've got to put it to work or I'm going to be replaced. Right. And so during the housing crisis, it seems to me a lot of it was just because there was so much excess liquidity pumped in there and that people were encouraged to do bad things by having this excessive amount of money in the system. Do you think there's any uh, any validity to that argument? Oh, absolutely. I absolutely. I mean, you know, the 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 fact of the matter is that people uh do need a little bit of guidance when mm-hmm. it, many people do, uh you know, when it comes to making decisions, especially decisions that they may that they may only make once in their lifetimes, like mm-hmm. the decision to buy a house. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we, we have a, a financial system where people used to get advice from their bankers. The banker would say, look, if I loan money to these people and they can't pay it back, then uh, I'm going to lose a lot of money because, I, you know, the, 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 I, I've loaned this person, you know, $80,000, $100,000 to buy a house and they defaulted on it and, and and you know I've either after foreclose and sell uh, sell it at a loss and it's a horrible situation for me and for the people, 
and for my shareholders, you know. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, we, we don't live in that world anymore. The world we live in is there's some mortgage originator who says, if I give this person a loan, the bigger load I can get to this person, the bigger commission I'll make. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have an incentive to give them a little teaser with very low rate for the first couple months and, uh, uh, you know, lie to them about what the monthly payments are so they think they can afford it when they can't. Then these things get packaged with a whole bunch of other uh, uh, mortgages into a security that some guy in, you know, Europe or Asia is buying, hopefully, mm-hmm. sometimes in the U.S. And, um, you know, and, and, and there's no one who has, who, who has any contact with the uh, homeowner, the mm-hmm. person trying to buy this home, who you know really has an incentive to explain to them what what this is going to mean for them in terms of financial obligations over the over the fifteen, twenty, thirty year period of the loan. It's a very big problem. Mm-hmm. So we don't have that investor, we don't have that borrower education kind of built into the system the way that we did in the old days when. You know, banks were booking these these uh, loans on their on the asset side of their balance sheet, mm-hmm. and we don't have the bankers knowing their borrowers the way we once did either. I can tell you that uh, as a young banker in the 1970s, as a credit analyst for some large institutions in New York City, uh, I felt that I was doing a worthwhile work in knowing the the corporate risks that I was facing. And a lot of times, middle market companies, smaller companies, you learn to know the people, their behaviors, their their ethics, uh, how they you know how they lived and how they worked, and uh, you know whether they were honorable people or not. And it seems then right. then then over time, we started um, packaging loans together, and we we didn't want to spend all this all this time and all this effort to uh, you know in studying these credits, and so we just packaged and bundled them, and then. Yeah, it seems to be an erosion of of the um, of the relationships between the banker and the borrower that used to be there. Well, uh, so what I has I couldn't agree with you more. By the way, this yeah. in terms of banking, you know the 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 fact that a you know a commercial lender or a personal lender, you know knows the person, knows their background, mm-hmm. uh, lives in the same community is tremendously important, and the, and the loss of that is cre- is injected. A huge amount of risk into the financial system. You're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a very interesting person on this show, uh, Ellen Brown, who's written a book called The Web of Debt, and she is um, uh, very much a proponent of a bank, the Bank of North Dakota. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but it's not. a it's a bank that's owned by the people of North Dakota. It almost sounds Marxist or communist, but uh, as I look at it, and and I'm a real capitalist. I must I must tell right. you that I'm a real free market advocate. But and when I look I. at that model, and this and this bank has done very well uh, since the early 1900s, earning good returns, not paying anybody out lavish salaries, and and those returns that are sent back to the state uh, to the state of finances to keep uh, and they and they work in in uh, in financing infrastructure in the state and in mm-hmm. and so forth, so it's sort of a nice idea, but I don't know how well it would work in New York City. But but anyway, yeah, well, that's what, I mean, we, you know, these things are often very specific to particular contexts. You know, I mean, I, I've seen a lot of situ- things like that that work pretty well in in like Scandinavian countries mm-hmm. and places where there's a lot of homogeneity and that are very small. People tend to know each other and sure. You know that's that 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 may work, and people ought to be able to you know as long as people are are taking both the risks and the rewards with a business enterprise, they ought to be able to do what they want. 
I'm not sure I'd apply that, as you say. I'm not sure I'd do it in New York City. Yeah, it's a little more difficult, probably. But in any event, back to your book, then. What, why, what has gone wrong? We've had all of this legislation. You know, we've had Dodd-Frank before that. We had uh, Sarbanes-Oxley. Um, I mean, is it working? Are those, those bits of legislation doing any good? You know, it's interesting. I, I'm so glad that you mentioned Sarbanes-Oxley, because even though it was only passed in 2001, nobody talks about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Everybody talks about Dodd-Frank, but let's just for a second talk. Think, put ourselves back when, you know, when Enron collapsed and when mm-hmm. WorldCom collapsed and Global Crossing, we had a Delphia yeah. scandal. There are just tons of these, these scandals. I could go on and on. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, George Bush, uh, you know, uh, is, uh, signs into, into law uh, Sarbanes-Oxley. Mm-hmm. And the idea of Sarbanes-Oxley was that we needed companies to be, I mean, uh, Sarbanes-Oxley was an accounting statute. It mm-hmm. basically is hundreds of pages, but basically the point of it was we want uh, people to understand the risks of their business, to understand mm-hmm. these fancy transactions they were engaged in. And there were tons of, many, many pages devoted to the way that off-balance sheet transactions should be accounted for and how audit committees of boards of directors should deal with hiring accounting firms and things like that. So basically the idea was if, if Sarbanes-Oxley were to work, it would mean that it would do what the statute would do, what it was intended to do, which, to, which is to, to allow people to understand the risks that these financial institutions were taking, mm-hmm. especially ones like Enron that kind of moved themselves from being a, uh, you know, an a, a, a oil provider and, a, and an energy company into being a, you know, a, an investment bank. Right. Well, what we saw was that Sarbanes actually did nothing. In other words, when we look at the financial crisis of 07 and 08, the whole idea of the crisis is firms were taking on massive amounts of risk. The Mm -hmm. largest financial institutions in the country, all of them, without exception, were taking on massive amounts of risk, and they had no idea that they were doing so. (laughs) So the whole core objective of Sarbanes-Oxley just completely failed. Mm-hmm. And, and But nobody can admit that. Nobody ever looks at the regulations that are in place when they have a problem. They just say, well, let's get a new regulation. Let's get a so new regulation. A new regulation, Dodd-Frank, which uh, uh, is designed to deal with this issue of systemic risk. And it's a complete failure. People know that already. It's a failure in that it had two objectives. One objective of Dodd-Frank was to... Uh, was to create a situation where we would get rid of too big to fail, and financial institutions would 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 have to uh, would 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 have to live in an environment where if they became bankrupt, there'd be no more bailouts. Mm-hmm. Nobody thinks we live in that world. That mm-hmm. is, the market tells us day after day that there are still institutions that are too big to fail. The government understands that. We have a new statute bouncing around in Congress now, Brown Vintner. That uh, is based on the idea that we still need to get rid of too big to fail, and, and, and they're right. Um, so it didn't do that. It's also supposed to help, uh, you know, small borrowers and consumers to kind of uh, have a better understanding of the transactions that they're getting into. And it has failed. It hasn't done anything there either. So, you know, we keep having these massive uh, uh, statutory responses that are extremely costly to business and don't produce any benefits to consumers. They're, yeah. I mean, they're great for lawyers, yeah. uh, and they're good for big 
business because they 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 create huge barriers to entry that right. only the very largest firms can survive in a in this you know in the financial industry. But right. you know we we keep making the same mistake over and over again. So the regulations tend to reduce competition for the big boys, the guys that have the most influence in Washington, perhaps. Absolutely, there's no question about it that these regulations create huge barriers to entry, lead to mergers, and ultimately reduce competition. Well, if there's one sort of idea that I've gotten from your book, uh, the one basic one would be that regulation that regulation doesn't work if anything it hinders uh, and it and it reduces the sense of responsibility on the part of corporations to 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 earn and to uh, well to earn good reputations by by being good citizens good corporate citizens yes and and the, and the point of the book is to try to go through in very concrete ways exactly how this has happened in the context of accounting firms in the context of investment banks in the context of the regulators themselves in the context of the credit rating agencies that that it's it's it you know the the details and the stories are different, but the bot, but the outcome is the same, which is less competition and uh, a a more uh, risky uh, 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 more risky economy that we otherwise would have. Well, um, you mentioned the uh, you know Enron and and earlier problems. Uh, we had the SNL crisis back in the early '80s. People went to jail. The Enron crisis. People went to jail. Yet it seems the most recent one, the housing scandal, uh, the problems that we had that that resulted from that. No one has gone to jail yet. Uh, well, Bernie Madoff, but he was a side story kind of. But but they it seems guilty. Yeah. So why why does no one go to jail? Well, you know, I, I mean, I, I as I, I was lamenting the fact a moment ago that you know we don't the, we don't seem to learn. Congress doesn't seem to learn mm-hmm. uh, from past failures when they enact new laws because they never look into the past. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the lesson is almost it's very similar with you know in terms of why nobody goes to jail, which is the crooks are learning. You know, the crooks are learning. We got to put a a significant amount of distance between us mm-hmm. and these uh, things that are occurring. We need plausible deniability. So, so you know, we you know to move up the number of layers necessary uh, for a prosecutor to make a case against somebody in a position of significant responsibility in a financial firm is very difficult. Yeah, and then you have these guys in the credit rating agencies are. Hiding behind the First Amendment, mm-hmm. you know, and you have the guys in the accounting agency, accounting firms hiding behind generally accepted accounting principles, which mm-hmm. don't necessarily require that financial statements reflect the actual financial condition of the company as long as we comply with these 75,000 different, you know, generally accepted accounting principles. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so, so we have regulatory complexity, which creates a shield, and we have, uh, you know, a lot of layers of, of, uh, Organizational structure, which allowed deniability. All right. Well, it cer- certainly does seem to be um, an argument for going back to more or less government and more free markets and regulation than to have uh, this government regulation. I, I would say that uh, the other day I happened to watch a, a video of Jeffrey Sachs at Columbia uh, talk about the things that have gone wrong and how. Uh, people that are doing some pretty naughty things are are able to buy their way uh, influence through Congress by paying a pittance really in campaign contributions. And I just say that uh, that yourself and Jeffrey Sachs are doing an honorable job of 
bringing these kinds of ideas to the public's attention. I hope that someone will pay attention to uh, to what you're saying, and uh, you and Jeffrey and other people that are independent of the um, uh, of the system. At least I, I like to see. Uh, I'd like to believe that you are independent and that you're looking at trying to find some solutions to help our country because this is this is really serious stuff what I see now going on the the financial system to me is teetering on the brink uh notwithstanding all of the happy talk that we get uh, uh from the mainstream every day uh I see a leverage system that is very very dangerous do you see it that way I completely agree and your point earlier about keeping interest rates low mm-hmm. I mean we 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 are in a situation where people, for whatever reason, don't trust markets and they think the government can solve all their problems despite uh, massive amounts of evidence to the contrary. Albert Einstein once said his definition of, of insanity was doing the same experiment over and over again and expecting to get a different result. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be what we're doing with regulation. And hopefully... Um, you know, people ultimately will will understand that that uh, we're just digging ourselves in a bigger, bigger hole. Well, I want to thank you very much. We are out of time. I want to tell our listeners the book is "The Death of Corporate Reputation" uh, by Professor Jonathan Macy. Uh, if you care at all about your country, about the finances, about what's really going on, and how they can be fixed and what needs to be changed, uh, pick up a copy of this book, read it, and then. I don't know. Try to try to influence your congressman. Get tell your friends, tell people uh, about it, and try to get some conversation going because we do need to get we do we do need to make some changes. Um, I don't see it happening unless unless the masses of people start to rally behind the ideas of Professor Macy and uh, I would say other people like Jeffrey Sachs too. Uh, we we do need to make some changes. I want to thank you very much. Professor Macy, for being with us today, and uh, I wish you a great pleasure. Just remember, it's always darkest before the dawn, so uh, I think we'll catch on before it's too late. I certainly hope so. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Well, thank you for that note of optimism. It's good to always uh, have some hope anyway. Thank you very much for that, uh, Professor Macy. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back after uh, after the commercial break. Uh, we're going to be talking to some to a man who some people think could become the Prime Minister of Israel. His name is Moshe Faglin. Yeah, he's certainly very controversial. Some people have called him the Ron Paul of Israel. Uh, so controversial, but but uh, he, he's very interesting. So you might want to come back and uh, listen to the show. Don't go away. I'll be right back after the break. Sandgold is an aggressive gold company operating in Manitoba, Canada, a top-ranked gold mining region. Sandgold's most recent gold discovery, the Shoreline Basalt Mining Unit, is already in production at more than 75,000 ounces per year. And Sandgold continues to pursue nearby targets within one of Manitoba's most prospective gold mining trends, the Rice Lake Gold Belt. Discover the potential at Sandgold. Trading symbol is SGRCF on the OTCQX and SGR on the Toronto Exchange. Visit our website at www.sandgold.ca. 